Right. Well, please open with me in God's Word or open your Revelation notebooks if you've brought them with you here to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, this morning we'll be looking at verses 8 to 11. While you're turning there, with everything that's going on in our country today, what do you think it's going to be like living as a Christian in our nation over the next five or ten years? I know that many of us are concerned as our religious liberties are slowly being taken away, as our faith is being challenged and ridiculed more and more. And as our culture is actively embracing ungodly and wicked beliefs and behaviors. All of this leads us to ask, is persecution coming our way? What kind of challenges may we soon be facing? And will we be able to persevere through the increasing hardships of our society? Well, these questions are nothing new. And rather than living in fear, Christ wants his church to live by faith. So he reveals through these words for us this morning how to prepare for persecution. So with this in mind, brothers and sisters, let us read together Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let us once again go before our great God in prayer. O Father, Whatever the concerns are on our hearts, whatever questions are in our minds, may we be fed and nourished in our souls by the truths you reveal to us through your word this morning. And Lord, may you be with all of us that your spirit will be at work through its empowerment as your word is preached, that we may truly hear from you this morning so that we will live as those who will persevere through whatever may take place through our lives in this world. Father, I pray you will be with me as the one whom you've entrusted to bring your words, that you will take this weak vessel. Father, that your strength will come through my weakness. That your words 
will indeed carry out their purpose in the lives of all who are gathered and all who hear. Father, we pray these things then in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, what encouragement does God show to us here through this letter this morning? Simply this, that since Christ has triumphed over death, we can suffer with confidence of our life in Him. I tried to come up with a more pithy way to say it, but I hope this longer statement will be helpful to your souls as it is to mine. Listen again. Since Christ has triumphed over death, we can suffer with confidence of our life in Him. And we see this in four parts through this letter. First, the people of Christ in verse 8. Second, the poverty of Christians in verse 9. Third, the persecution of Satan in verse 10, followed finally by the promise of life in verse 11. So the people of Christ, the poverty of Christians, the persecution of Satan, and the promise of life. Let's begin then by looking closer at verse 8. We see the people of Christ. Remember, Revelation is a letter of apocalyptic prophecy, which was given through symbolic visions from Christ that are then shown to the Apostle John. And John records then what he has seen for Christ's churches to have read and to hear and to keep what he has written to them. So it's in the first chapter as Revelation opens, that there is a vision of Christ who is ruling and reigning from heaven in all of his glory over history and what takes place in our world. And then this is followed in chapters 2 and 3 by Christ sending specific letters to seven churches there in Asia Minor, which represent all of Christ's churches through this age, since the number seven in Scripture symbolizes fullness or completeness or perfection. But this morning we come then to the second letter here, to the church in Smyrna, which follows the same general format as the previous letter we have seen to the church of Ephesus. Now, Christ was warning the church of Ephesus of losing their first love for God and their love for God and their love for one another. But this church in Smyrna has encountered much more severe tribulation. And so we read then at the beginning of verse 8, And the angel to the angel of the church of Smyrna writes, Christ is speaking to them through the angel of their church. But what do we know about the city of Smyrna? It's never mentioned outside of the book of Revelation in the Bible, but Smyrna is actually the only of these seven cities which remains to this day. It's the city of Izmir in Turkey. But this city was another prosperous seaport, which was about 35 miles north of Ephesus, which meant it was another leading city there in the Roman Empire. It was long devoted to Rome with a temple to the goddess Roma, as well as a temple that was dedicated to the emperor Tiberius. But Smyrna was also known for its architecture 
And for its artistic beauty, it's been claimed that the great Greek prophet Homer was born here. But there were many diverse cultures present in this city, including a sizable Jewish population which arrived there after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But Christ wants his church in this city to preserve in their faith and to persevere in their faith. And so he seeks to encourage them through this letter. So then how does this letter begin? It's with a description of Christ's glory. Let's go on to read that as verse 8 continues. These things says the first and the last. See, Christ is the first and the last, which was declared back in chapter 1, verse 17. In that opening vision, the church of Smyrna then is reminded of this truth from the very opening vision of Revelation. He is the first and the last. He's sovereign over all of history, from the past to the future to everything in between. And this means then that Christ is sovereign and in control of what this church is currently experiencing and what is still coming for them. But this is also the same language that is used of God himself and the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. What we have then here is this Glorious picture of Jesus, who is fully God, the second person of the divine Trinity, who's also fully man, now reigning and ruling over human history. But there is another description that's given here at the end of the verse. He is the first and the last who was dead and came to life. This connects with verse 18 then of chapter 1 in the opening vision. Think of it this way. Our God became man to die and come to life in our place. That is the very gospel encouragement that's summarized for this church in the opening verse of this letter. See, while we deserve to come under God's judgment for our sinful rebellion against Him, Christ took our punishment upon Himself as He hung and bled and died on the cross for us. And it's then Christ who endures the very wrath of God that we deserve for our sin through His death so that we no longer face death under God's judgment and condemnation, but are given life, the very life that Christ now has as He has risen from the dead with resurrection life, so that we too share in the eternal life that we are given to then enjoy in God's presence forever. These are the very words of hope that God gives to all of us 
So I ask you this morning, is this your hope? Is this your hope? The hope that God himself becomes man so that he will take our place. Has he taken your place? Has he taken your judgment? Has he paid the price under the wrath of God you deserve? Because without him, you continue in your sin under the very judgment of God. Oh, if this is you this morning, may you look to Christ and come to Christ who in love voluntarily gave himself for you to be saved from the wrath of God, to be forgiven of your sins, to be reconciled with God and to receive life rather than death in his name. Turn away from your sins in repentance and turn to Christ in faith, trusting in Christ who has done all for you to receive life rather than death. Because it's after Christ's death that he was raised to resurrection life, becoming the first fruits of all those who will believe in him. And this, brothers and sisters, is our future hope in Christ. Resurrection life. See, it's through this letter, like the other letters in Revelation, that the opening description of Christ in glory is chosen to encourage Christ's church and to address their situation. And this church needs the hope of resurrection life. The church of Smyrna needed to be reminded that Christ is in control of what is happening in this world and in their lives and that he has conquered death so that all who believe in him will share in his resurrection life. And this is the hope that we need too in our day. Whatever happens to us in this world, we have life in Christ and we look forward to our resurrection life in Christ, because we are the people of Christ. Then we move to the second part of this letter. We move from the people of Christ in verse 8 to the poverty of Christians in verse 9. And as before, Christ begins to speak in this verse by saying, look at verse 9, I know your works. He knows them. He knows their works. And what are this church's works that Christ is referring to? Will we go on to see? I know your works, tribulation and poverty. And then down, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews. So there are three words that describe the works Christ knows. First, their tribulation. These Christians were enduring many hardships as they were living in the city of Smyrna. That's why Christ then encourages by saying, I know, I know your tribulation. Listen now, Jim Hamilton explains the significance of Christ's words to the church. He says, Jesus does not trivialize their suffering by telling them it really isn't that bad. He doesn't demean them by telling them that if they were stronger, it wouldn't bother them so much. 
And he doesn't cheapen their experience by offering unsympathetic advice. Rather, Jesus ennobles their suffering with the simple and comforting words, I know your tribulation. Hamilton goes on to say, One of the most discouraging effects of suffering is that we feel alone. When Jesus tells the church in Smyrna that he knows their tribulation, he is reminding them of his presence with them. He is present with his church in their tribulation. But not only is he present with them in knowing their tribulation, he's also present with them as he knows their poverty. Their poverty. This was the result of their tribulation. They lost all that they had, all their worldly possessions, all their financial resources. It cost them everything to follow Christ. They struggled to find and keep employments and make a living in a hostile pagan culture. They faced anti-Christian mobs who looted and demolished their property. They had their possessions plundered, their property confiscated, all of which left them poor and destitute. But then Christ adds, you are rich. Because when we have Christ, we have far more than anything this world can offer us. Including money. Or earthly riches or possessions. Because even if we are poor, we are spiritually rich in Christ. And our value does not depend on how much we have or on how much we own. But our value is found in Christ and is abundantly secure through our union with Christ. Let's turn briefly to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10 verses 29 to 30, because here Jesus speaks of what we give up in this life compared to what we gain by following Christ. You may be called to give up everything in this world. But listen, you gain something far greater. So let's hear from Jesus himself as he speaks to his disciples here in these verses. Mark 10, verses 29 to 30. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Do you see what we may give up in this life? How we may endure and suffer persecution? And yet look at what we gain. Eternal life in the age to come. What glorious future we have in Christ. Well, going back to this letter in Revelation, Christ knows their works. Christ knows their poverty. But then third, we go on to see in verse 9, he says, I know the blasphemy of the Jews. 
because the tribulation of the church in Smyrna was largely due to the Jewish people who were opposing them, who lived there in the city of Smyrna. You see, the Jews had received an exception for them to worship God rather than to participate in the pagan idolatry of the Roman Empire. And they didn't want Christians to threaten this privilege or to take advantage of it in their own worship. So they opposed the church. Christians for the Jews of the day were both a religious problem and a political problem, which is why they condemned and cast out Christians from their synagogues, why they encouraged mobs to destroy their property, and why they actively denounced and reported Christians to the Roman authorities to be arrested and even executed. Which is why we then come to a statement about these Jews in Smyrna who have rejected Jesus. And what does he say about them? I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They are a synagogue of Satan. Here we see that they have spoken blasphemy by cursing the name of God himself in slanderous accusations of God's church. And while they say they are Jews, they are not. But as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 9, 6, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Because it is only those who believe in God's promise of salvation in Jesus Christ who are truly Jews. Which is why Paul calls Christ church in Galatians 6.16 the Israel of God. One may share in the blood of Abraham as an ethnic Jew, but not share in the faith of Abraham as a true Jew. So let's turn then to John chapter 8 where Jesus encounters Jews there and speaks to them about their true father. See, they claimed Abraham as their father, the very father of the Jewish people. But what does Jesus say to them? Well, again, John chapter 8, verses 37 to 47. I want to read 10 verses here to hear the conversation that takes place here. Jesus says to them, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. But they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. 
Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. In their unbelief, in not hearing and believing in the words of Christ, they are not under the fatherhood of Abraham, but have Satan as their father. Which is why we run into another contrast here in Revelation 2. Remember, these Christians were in poverty, but he says you are rich. And now these Jews say they are Christians and are not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. As Grant Osborne points out, in the world, their status is reversed. But their status before God is here made clear. So Christ says to these Jews that they are a synagogue of Satan. And while they meet in a synagogue to worship God, they're actually following their spiritual father, Satan. Do you remember what Jesus said to the apostle Peter when he rejected Christ's death on the cross? In Matthew 16, verse 23, we read, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And these Jews are following the same path. They are not a synagogue of God, but a synagogue of Satan, because they serve as adversaries of God and are hostile to the true Israel of God, whose faith is in Jesus Christ. Now, we're uncomfortable talking like this today. We should not miss that Satan is actively working to oppose Christ in his gospel ministry. And those who reject Christ and seek to stop his gospel from spreading are doing the work of Satan. Yes, these are strong words in the book of Revelation, which is why there are many today who call the Apostle John's writing anti-Semitic or against the Jews, while others will try to minimize the offensiveness of Christ's words. But Jews are not true Jews when they refuse to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And their hope, listen, their hope is no different than ours. It's fellow sinners. But they too can look to Christ and be saved. Now, none of this means that we should treat Jews poorly or that we should seek to harm them or hurt them in any way. But it means that we do recognize their spiritual condition before God and call on them to come to Christ as their Savior as well as ours. Brothers and sisters, though, as we reflect upon the poverty of Christians that were living there in Smyrna, it's amazing to me how kind and gracious God has been to us. None of us here who follow Christ find themselves living under this kind of tribulation and poverty. And for that, I'm grateful. But here's the question we should wrestle with this morning. What would happen if it was all taken away? All your possessions all your property, all your comfort, all your money. What happens if you could no longer work 
or go to school or be involved in society. Would you rest in your riches in Christ? Would you stand firm against the powerful in our culture who blaspheme God's name and who serve as Christ's adversaries? Such faith is only found by looking to Christ, by trusting in Christ, by recognizing that in Christ we are rich, even when everything else is stripped away from us. This gives us the proper perspective in the midst of whatever poverty we may experience as Christians in this world. So we began with the first part of this letter by looking at the people of Christ and continued in the second part of the poverty of Christians. But now let's turn to the third part of this letter where we see the persecution of Satan. Think about this for a moment. More persecution is coming to these Christians in Smyrna. After everything they have gone through, some of them are about to go through much more intense suffering. And how should they live? Verse 10, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Christ emphatically commands them, Do not fear. Now, I don't know about you, but that's much easier said than done. Place yourselves in their shoes. They have faced government opposition and oppression. They have endured the hostility and the hatred of the Jews. They have already lost everything they owned. And yet, they're called and commanded not to fear. Why? Because persecution should be no surprise to Christians living in this world. Christ's churches should expect persecution. That's why the Apostle Paul warns us in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And when we suffer persecution, we must not fear. But how do we not fear? It's by remembering God's gospel promises, which he gives to us in Jesus Christ. Do you remember that great psalm from the Old Testament, Psalm 46, the opening three verses, what they declare of God? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its dwelling. How do we not fear? By looking to God, who is our refuge and strength, a very present help in our trouble. And this refuge and strength and help comes through Jesus Christ. Let's also remember, as Jesus Christ himself tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
So we're not to fear what man can do to us. They can only take away our bodies. We are to fear God, who destroys both body and soul in hell, in judgment for sin. We fear God then in reverence and awe through faith in Jesus Christ. Which is why we do not fear the world and whatever the world can do to us, because Christ is greater than the world. And how will this increased suffering come in Smyrna? By some of them being imprisoned for their faith. That's what we go on to read in verse 10. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And notice who throws them into prison. The devil. Satan. Once again, we shouldn't miss the reality of spiritual warfare in this world. Satan would love nothing more for us than to ignore him or to live as if he's not around, he's not active. But the devil and his horde of demons attack Christ's church and seek to oppose us as we glorify Christ and proclaim his glory to the world. These Christians then would become prisoners until their trial for treason against Rome or until they were executed under the punishment of death. See, what is coming will be hard for them, and it will put their faith to the test. That's what we go on to read there in verse 10, that you may be tested, because they will be tempted to give up their faith in Christ, to end their agony, to stop their suffering. Here's then the test they face. Do they really believe what they say they believe? What's most important to you when it costs you suffering? When it costs you something? This test reveals then whether their faith is sincere or whether their faith is merely convenient. And this coming tribulation we read will happen. It says they, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, there's some debate over the meaning of these 10 days. I don't think the 10 days here refer to literal 10, 24-hour periods of time. But I think they are symbolically tied to Daniel chapter 1. You know, Revelation also all, often appeals back to Daniel and alludes back to Daniel. But in Daniel 1, we have Daniel and his friends who are tested for 10 days by only eating vegetables and water rather than eating from the king's delicacies. You see, these Christians too will be captured for a short but severe period when they will be tested like Daniel and his friends to remain faithful rather than to compromise with the world. To give in to the world and what the world wants of us. And listen, this suffering that they are facing can even lead to death. That's why we read there in verse 10, be faithful until death. Will Christ prove more important to them than life itself? They are called to faithfulness, even when it means becoming a martyr and dying for their faith. That's the ultimate 
sacrifice of suffering we can face in this life. Dying for our faith in Christ. But when we are faithful to death, look at what we receive there at the end of verse 10. Christ says, and I will give you the crown of life. This is not a crown of royalty. This is a crown of victory. It was like the wreath that was placed on the head of an athlete who won a competition. This would be similar to today in the Olympics, the honor that takes place in a ceremony where an Olympic medal, a gold medal, would be placed around the head and onto the shoulders of the victor of the game. What a wonderful blessing that is to be victorious. And yet, how much greater is this reward for us? Because this crown is a crown of life. You see, persecution cannot take away the life that Christ gives us. Even if we are put to death for our faith in Christ, Christ reassures us with this truth, we will have eternal life in Him. And to be clear, it's not their faithfulness that earns them this crown of life. But it's the genuineness of their faith that is proven in their willingness to die for Christ. What does Jesus say to them? I will give you the crown of life. It is His doing and His blessing for all of us who truly believe in Christ. That's why we read in James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And as we consider looking at this letter from Christ to the church of Smyrna, there's a difference from the previous letter that Christ gave to Ephesus, because here we read of no condemnation for sin. There's no warning given to Smyrna. And they are one of two of the seven churches that receive letters in Revelation that are not called to repent. Why? It's because persecution has a way of purifying God's people. That our suffering is the means through which we are sanctified. And it's why then it's through persecution and suffering that we are made more and more into the image of Christ as we are weaned from our love of this world and rejoice more fully in the glories that are to come in Him. May we all share then the heart of the Apostle Paul who wrote in Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is our hope and our confidence in the midst of persecution, the persecution of Satan. How thankful I am to God that, again, we have not suffered under anything like this persecution in our lifetimes. 
But here's the truth. Such times of peace and prosperity are not normal for followers of Christ. And this makes me ask, why? Why are we not suffering under persecution today? Now, I'm not saying that we should develop a martyr complex and start going out and looking for persecution. But why are we not experiencing more persecution today? And I have to wonder, is it because we are so worldly that Satan does not see us as a threat? Is it because we are so at home in this world, we are not living and looking forward to the future home we have in heaven with Christ? Brothers and sisters, we should expect persecution. The Church of Christ faces the persecution of Satan in this world. So we began with the people of Christ and then continued with the poverty of Christians and third then looked at the persecution of Satan. But finally, in verse 11, we come to the final part of this letter, the promise of life. Once again, we read these words, verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, the church of Smyrna was not unique. All of Christ's churches should then ask ourselves, will we be prepared for persecution? Will we obey Christ and suffer for his sake? Will this letter describe us when we go through tribulation and poverty and blasphemous slander? Here's the great promise that Christ gives to those who are faithful until death. Verse 11, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. See, when we stand firm in the faith during trials and tribulation, we overcome the temptations and tests which are placed in our lives. And we suffer because of the coming, the promise of coming glory. Our suffering is temporary, but our glory in Christ is permanent, which is why we will not be hurt by the second death. The first death we all face. The first death is the death of our bodies, which all of us face in our sin. But there is a second death. And the second death is mentioned to us as the book of Revelation continues to unfold. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 20, where we read more of the second death once Christ returns and the final judgment comes. Here we then read of our final judgment by God at the end of this age. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. 
And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what is the second death? The lake of fire. Where sinners will be tortured for all eternity under the wrath of God for their sin against Him. Well, these are indeed sobering words in Christ. Neither our souls or our bodies will be destroyed in hell because the second death has no power over us. Isn't that glorious? We have to look forward to this future life of glory with Christ, which is why he reassures us of this truth, no matter how difficult or how deadly our lives in this world may become. What an encouragement then God provides for us through this letter. Again, let us be reminded of this truth that since Christ has triumphed over death, we can suffer with confidence of our life in him. Since Christ has triumphed over death, we can suffer with confidence of our life in him. And what is our twofold response as followers of Christ? Well, they're given in verse 10. First, do not fear your suffering. Because your suffering is temporary. It can only affect the body. You are given eternal life in Christ and have the glories to look forward to in Him. Do not fear your suffering. But second, you see in verse 10, you're called to be faithful until death. Be faithful until death. May you experience the suffering of persecution? May you even be called to die for your faith in Christ in this world? Yes. And Christ says to you and to all of us, be faithful until death because you will receive the crown of life. You'll be resurrected with life to enjoy eternally with God and Christ. See, as Christ suffered until he entered into the glory, we too will follow the same path in him by faith. We will suffer into entering our glory. And this, then, is how we persevere through persecution. See, this tribulation was not only a test for the first century church, but it has continued throughout church history, even until today. And less than 100 years later, 
In the mid-2nd century, we can return to the very same city of Smyrna, where again there is persecution, and where Polycarp served as the bishop of the church there. Polycarp was actually discipled by the Apostle John himself. But he was arrested by the Roman authorities because he refused to follow their religious practices and worship the emperor. Well, many of you know what happened. Polycarp was brought before the city in their amphitheater where the governor asked him to deny Christ and worship the Roman gods so that his life would be spared. Otherwise, he would be burned at the stake. How does Polycarp respond? His famous response to the governor were these words. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? And so he was burned at the stake and died. But to this very church that he pastored, he knew that while his body may have burned, he would receive the crown of life. And it was this confidence that through faith allowed him to suffer. And it's the same confidence we all have in Christ, brothers and sisters, as we continue to live by faith in Him. Polycarp suffered and died with confidence of his life in Christ. And the same confidence is available to you and to me. May we be those then who look to Christ, who has triumphed over death, so that we too can suffer with confidence of our life in Him. Let's pray. Father, may the glory of Christ shine brightly before us even in the midst of the spiritual darkness of our world. And while this may not make suffering easy, Father, it makes suffering something we can endure and persevere through, even find joy in, as we look forward to the life that we have in Christ, no matter what happens in this world or what may happen to our bodies. May we live each and every day you give us in this world then with this confidence by faith, Father, our confidence in Christ, because He is the first and the last. He was dead is now alive and rules and reigns in heaven over all that happens in this world. And He will one day return so that we will live in resurrection life with Him forever. Father, may this be our confident hope. We pray in the name of our glorious Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.